nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, but they're there. It was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact they sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Welcome to History Gems, where anyone with a passion for pearls is in for a treat. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most famous pearls in history, La Peregrina, which translates from Spanish as the Pilgrim Woman, a gem that has an extraordinary tale to tell and whose story spans more than 500 years. Here to tell us more is Dr. Valerie Schutte. Some other sources, which again are all kind of murky, hold that La Pellegrina was not actually discovered until the 1570s. So it could not possibly have been the pearl that Philip gave to Mary. Valerie Schutte is an independent scholar with a PhD in history from the University of Akron. She's published widely on Royal Tudor women, book dedications and queenship. Her first monograph is Mary I and the Art of Book Dedications, Royal Women, Power and Persuasion. She's edited or co-edited four volumes on Mary I, Shakespeare and Queenship, of which the Palgrave Handbook of Shakespeare's Queens won the 2020 Royal Studies Journal Book Prize. Her second monograph, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Royal Gift Book Exchange, has been recently published and she's currently co-editing a two-volume series on Mary I in writing and literature to be published in 2022 and co-editing a volume in the making and remaking of the Queenships of Lady Jane Grey and Mary I to be published in 2023. She's also writing a cultural biography of Anne of Cleves. Hi Valerie and welcome to History Gems. It's wonderful to have you joining me today and we're going to be talking about a wonderful, beautiful pearl that's still in existence. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk uh, jewels with you. This is a little out of my wheelhouse, but I'm, I'm really excited. Oh no, I, I'm I'm even more excited. It's it's I'm a great admirer of your work, so it's lovely to get the chance to talk to you kind of in person. And I think perhaps. I mean, this pearl that we're going to be talking about, La Peregrina, as it's called, it does have links with Mary I. And I know that you've done lots and lots of work on Mary. So perhaps we could just start by you telling us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, Primarily, I research um, Mary's books and books that were related to her, books that were dedicated to her, owned by her. Um, So I'm more, I guess, of I'm a book scholar. I'm even, I started to branch out recently into works that were written about her during her reign. So I'm looking at some of the popular literature that was um, written at her accession. So things that were kind of more widely disseminated and um, really talked about her lineage and legitimacy and her right to be queen. That sounds so interesting. I'm really interested, um, you know, when you're, you're saying about the uh, her books as well. That sounds that sounds really fascinating. I what I think is really fascinating is that she was um, so educated and so she's one of those queens to me that still I think doesn't get as much credit as maybe Elizabeth or Lady Jane Grey, but she would have had the same kind of education. 
And I feel like it's my life mission to kind of bring all of that to light more or to really encourage other historians and non-historians and people to really understand that Mary was just as capable of being queen as those other two women. And um, her books have a lot to do with this. I mean, she was really very educated. She owned lots of books. She read lots of books. Um, she, you know, she had a great personal library. She exchanged books with her husband, Philip. Those were some of their wedding gifts to each other. There's this fantastic book um, in Spain that Catherine of Aragon had made for herself, a history of England, but in Spanish, made for herself when she was Arthur's widow. She then gave it to Mary and Mary gave it to Philip as a wedding gift. And it's still part of his collection that exists now. So there's so much to learn about Mary as a princess and a queen as a woman through her books. That's seriously cool. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and um, speaking about wedding gifts, so does La Peregrina form part of these wedding gifts? Because this is a pearl that is very much or has been until recently very much associated with Mary. And so I'm interested to know does it have genuine links to Mary that we can, you know, guess at or, or prove? So I think the thing to start with maybe is the tradition of La Peregrina. So yeah. um, definitely uh, tradition holds that La Peregrina was found off the coast of Panama in 1513 by an African slave in that in the Spanish colony of Panama. Um, the slave, you know, found this big pearl. He used it to buy his freedom it was given to the Spanish authorities who then had it shipped over to Spain um, where it formed part of the royal jewels. And then it was hung on a pendant or a brooch um, with two large diamonds and Philip gave it to Mary ahead of their wedding. So maybe in June, it arrived in England before him as a wedding gift. And she then wore it as part of her wedding dress. So okay. that's kind of how it, those are its associations with Mary. So if you look at the two most famous portraits of Mary, the, the Hans Enworth and the Anthonis Moore painting, it's on her in those paintings. That's the brooch, that's the La Pellegrina. And most paintings of Mary that have come down are kind of derived from those two. So, I mean, she's really known for wearing this pearl that was given to her um, by Philip as a wedding gift. And then... Um, the pearl, so after Mary dies, the pearl was given back to Philip. It goes back to Spain. It stays in the Royal Jewel Collection for 250 years. And um, in the 1800s, uh, Joseph Bonaparte ruled Spain. And when he left or was ousted, he took some of the Royal Jewels with him. So one was La Pellegrina. And it gets um, passed down to Napoleon III, emperor, who then himself gets ousted. And during his... Um, exile in Britain, um, he's hard up for money. So he sells the pearl and he sells it to the Duke of Abercorn as a gift for his wife. Her name was uh, Louisa Hamilton. The pearl then stays in the Hamilton family until 1969 when it is sold at auction by Sotheby's and purchased by Richard Burton for Elizabeth Taylor, which is kind of the newest history it's most remembered for is its association with Elizabeth Taylor. That's a very, very cool link. Um, and I just kind of want to come back a bit to, to Philip. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, you said that, so after Mary dies, this pearl 
is given back to Philip. I mean, presumably it's in England at the time that Mary dies. I'm just really surprised, actually, that Elizabeth gave it back. So that's where the history of La Pellegrina gets murky. So the story I kind of told you is the tradition of La Pellegrina. So it's worn by Mary, given back to the Spanish royal family, and it stays until, um, you know, it stays there until it resurfaces. Well, there is a possibility that that is not the pearl, in fact, that uh, Mary had. Okay. um, Some other sources, which again are all kind of murky, um, hold that La Pellegrina was not actually discovered until the 1570s. So it could not possibly have been the pearl that Philip gave to Mary. Um, So it is possible that she is wearing a different pearl. Um, And this pearl was found um, in 1526. And it was owned by Isabella of Portugal, who was wife of Charles V and mother to Philip. Um, This pearl was then passed on to Juana, Philip's sister, at um, Isabella's death. And Isabella gave the pearl to Philip to give to Mary as a wedding gift. Because she was regent of Spain while he went to England for his wedding. So she gives him the pearl to be the wedding gift. He has it set. He sends it ahead of time to Mary. So either way, she's definitely wearing a pearl that Philip gave her as a wedding gift. Um, it is then this pearl featured in the Moore and Eworth paintings. It's this pearl that she becomes famous for. Um, and then we're not sure if Elizabeth, in fact, gave the pearl back to Philip because supposedly this was in Mary's will that, you know, her this jewel should go back to Philip. But Elizabeth was notorious for ignoring everything in Mary's will. So are, did she really give the pearl back? Maybe not. And then... Elizabeth herself is later painted wearing a very large pearl pendant that is eerily similar to the one that Mary has. And the pearl kind of sort of disappears for a while. And it resurfaces in 2004, I think, where it went to auction and was sold. So it also exists. They both exist. But there there is no definitive 100% answer as to which one Mary actually wore. Okay. I mean, was she somebody, tell us a bit more about Mary in terms of, was she a queen who, who liked finery? Did she, did she enjoy jewels? Do we know much about the sorts of things that she had? She absolutely loved jewels. Um, from the time she was a girl, her privy purse expenses are filled with jewels that she bought, jewels that were given to her, clothing. She really did like to be dressed up. Um, her like her expense accounts really are filled with rows and rows and items of jewelry and clothing. And when you look at some of those, Mary often annotated them in her own hand. And when she became queen, she gave a lot of her jewelry to Elizabeth. So there are items in there that she specifically gave. Now we can't really trace them. Um, And you probably could definitely better than I if we were still trying to find um, extant pieces. But we know that she did like jewelry. And sometimes this is kind of used against her as, oh, she was frivolous, you know, especially after the Reformation happens where, you know, Jane Grey is supposed to have dressed very modestly and not like jewelry. And Elizabeth, after the Seymour affair, is like, oh, wait, I will, you know, become a little bit more modest. So this is often used against Mary. 
But I think some of the newest work shows how important jewelry really was to establishing a queenship, to establishing or, you know, showing off her own lineage. You know, she was the daughter of a king of England and and a queen of England, unless you, you know, and until she wasn't a queen of England, but a daughter of Spain. You know, so this jewelry really was part of her position. It was something that she would have been expected to wear and enjoyed wearing. Mm. And tell us something about Mary that might surprise us. I mean, is the myth of Bloody Mary true? I mean, I I definitely don't think so. Um, I am working my hardest to um, really push against that myth. And, and I find it's that historians or history in the last 20 or 30 years have really written a lot and discovered a lot and shown that this isn't true, but the myth of Bloody Mary just doesn't seem to go away. No. So popular perception of Bloody Mary just doesn't change. Mm. Um, but no, did she over, was she queen during the burnings? Absolutely. But, you know, her father and brother also had lots of people executed and her father more so than her. So there, this wasn't uncommon. She didn't make up these practices on her own. Um, so no, there's, there's a lot more to Mary than Bloody Mary, certainly. So I think, I mean, some, I'm trying to think of something really surprising to tell you. I, I don't know. There's so much I like about Mary. And I think it's, um, well, okay. I'll, I'll give you an anecdote from something that I, I'm just working on. Yeah. So I have a book coming out later this year on, um, the translations that Princess Elizabeth gave as New Year's gifts as a child. And I, I love them and they're amazing. And I love how she dedicates them to Catherine Parr and her brother, Edward and Henry and how there's probably at least two more that have disappeared. Um, So she really undertook this. She undertook a translation, you know, activities as a, as an 11 and 12 and 13 year old girl to kind of find her way within the Royal family. And what I always find surprising or ignored is that Mary undertook the same kind of work and it gets downplayed. Um, so it's one of those things too, where I think I don't only fight against um, the myth of Bloody Mary, but the idea that Elizabeth or that Mary was lesser than Elizabeth. You know, they were very friendly before um, Edward's reign, even, you know, Elizabeth gave her or Mary gave Elizabeth loads of presents and they shared tutors and they, they were seemed to be pretty close. Um, but one of my favorite things is I just found um, some some of the dedications that were given, that were written to Mary earlier in her life were then repurposed and given to Elizabeth. And those ones to Elizabeth are often cited as how singular and unique Elizabeth was as a woman, but they're just really repurposed from things that were given to Mary. So I think there's a lot we can even learn from book history about the two sisters and how they're more similar than maybe people think when they think of Mary and Elizabeth in terms of queens. That's really interesting. And I was just going to say, um, sort of picking up on the point that you made about, um, you know, kind of the precedent for executions had been set prior to Mary. And it's something that Elizabeth does too, right? I mean, she doesn't burn people, but she hangs, draws and quarters Catholics. Isn't that, I think that's right. I, I think that's right too. Yeah. I mean, the treason laws didn't go away. You know? No, so, um, <laughs> they just changed, but they didn't go away. Yeah, you know, so definitely, people were executed as 
traitors, um, you know, for religious reasons under Elizabeth as well. Yeah, yeah, which is something I find really, really interesting when, you know, when thinking about this myth of Bloody Mary and the fact that, yeah, Elizabeth actually does exactly the same thing, just in a kind of different way. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, what was I going to say? So, sorry, so moving back to uh, La Peregrina, and do we know anything about how it came to get its name because this is something that sort of intrigues me is it's quite an interesting name and you know some quite often when jewels were particularly splendid they were given a name so I'm just intrigued to know so La Pellegrina means the wanderer so it kind of speaks to its history of maybe a little bit of its unknown history or how it seemed to get passed around and didn't have one specific owner or didn't stay within one specific family so it speaks to its history of how it traveled across the, con- of, you know, across an ocean and then across countries and um, to different royal people and maybe not royal people if we don't exactly know uh, where it was. Yeah. But that's that's where its name comes from. That's really interesting. And you also touched upon the fact that um, that the the pearl was eventually sold at Sotheby's and bought by Richard Burton. So mm-hmm. do we know anything about why he bought it? He he bought it for Elizabeth Taylor as a Valentine's gift. Oh. So he bought it for the very, what I would think for a pearl of this size and historical importance for $37,000. Wow. Um, he, yes, exactly. So he <laughs> bought it and he bought it and I believe it was slightly smaller than the original version. It had been recently... Um, I'm going to say like shaved down, it needed a new way to hang it and it had been damaged somehow. So it was, so he bought it and then he actually had, he gave it to Cartier to reset, which is, that's its current setting. And if you've seen images of it in that gorgeous necklace, he uh, did that for Elizabeth Taylor and it was a Valentine's present. Oh, wow. I mean, seriously, I need to get my fiance on the case if if that's the sort of thing that Elizabeth Taylor is getting. That's, you know, <laughs> I'm missing out. Apparently she loved it and they she wore it regularly and they both really cherished this pearl. And my favorite story about La Pellegrina is how um, she wore it all the time, Elizabeth Taylor did, and she was in Las Vegas with her husband in a suite in Caesar's Palace And she's wearing her necklace and she reaches down to feel the pearl and it's not there. So she panics. She doesn't tell her husband because she doesn't want him to panic. She scours their hotel room looking for this pearl. She um, runs around looking everywhere. She can't find it. And she has some puppies in her hotel room with her. And she looks down and one of her puppies is chewing on something. And she reaches in its mouth and pulls out the pearl that her puppy had been chewing on. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And she said, luckily, it was unscratched and they've had it fixed and put it back on the necklace. But yes. Wow. Also chewed on by her puppy. Oh, my gosh. That's a that's a miracle. Yes. I can't believe that it was undamaged. If it was my puppy, he would have swallowed it whole. So I can't <laughs> They were very, very lucky. Yes. <laughs> and didn't I think I've read somewhere that didn't um didn't Richard Burton also purchase the uh, or a portrait of Mary to go alongside this pearl because he believed that it, it had once been Mary's property. They he did. He um so the portrait of Mary at the National Portrait Gallery 
um, the Hans Eworth painting. Um, it is when Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton learned that the National Portrait Gallery did not possess a portrait of Mary. They helped in purchasing the portrait in 1972. So they pitched in, the National Portrait Gallery pitched in, and one of the National Art Lottery funds, but they were instrumental in getting that painting to the National Portrait Gallery because Mary was wearing La Pellegrina in the painting. And uh, they couldn't believe that the National Portrait Gallery didn't have a painting of Mary. I mean, that does seem crazy, doesn't it? You know, It really does seem crazy, especially by the 1970s. That seems crazy that they wouldn't have a portrait of of the first queen of England. Yeah, but. yeah, exactly. That's, wow. Um, so then what what happened to the necklace? Because Oh, sorry. Yes, it, it was a necklace because you said that then it was sold? It was. So when um, Elizabeth Taylor died, her lot of jewelry went up for auction again in 2011. And it was sold, I think, by Christie's this time. Um, and it was sold, including fees, to a private owner for $11 million. Oh my goodness. Wow. And we don't, we don't know where it's gone or where it is. We don't know where it's gone. Um, the other pearl is in London. So it was purchased the, the possible other pearl that Mary Tudor wore. Um, it was purchased at a Christie's auction and its current owners are symbol and chase of bond street. You can also see that pearl um, pictures of it online. The symbol and chase website has, has them online. I don't know if it's on display there, but you can still see it. That's really, really cool. I had no idea about that pearl. And I I need to get onto that because I would love to go and see that. <laughs> Me too. I, am, I, I didn't know that either. And I am really excited to hopefully get my eyes on that pearl. Yeah. Does that pop up in any of Mary's inventories? I mean, are there actually inventories of her jewels? So there, there are inventories. Um, and what I can't get my hands on and really want to see is after Mary died, Philip made an inventory of things that Mary gave him during their marriage. And I absolutely want to get my hands on it to see what else is there. But I mean, uh, when he arrived in England, before he even stepped foot off of his Armada ship, he was given the Order of the Garter and a beautifully decorated, jeweled garter and um, sword with a bejeweled hilt. And I'd love to know if those were in his inven the inventory that he took after she died. And I think he made it for the purpose of if Elizabeth asked for anything back or if there, there couldn't be any accusations that he took crown jewels, you know, that these things were all gifts. And I really, really want to get my hands on it to know, yeah. you know, is that pearl in that list or, or not? Where is it? Where is the inventory? I think it's in Spain somewhere. So I I have only recently come across a a reference to it and I went, I have never heard of that and now I need it. So this is one of those things that after lockdown, hopefully um, I can get to. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, so which which theory do you think is, is more likely to be accurate in terms of La Peregrina? Do you think that Mary did own the pearl or do you think that it did, it was only discovered a bit later on. I'm actually not sure, but I really, really, really want to believe the La Peregrina because I love the idea that she owned and wore this famous pearl and in a way made it famous um, because that was part of the allure for, you know, later Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton was that this pearl had been owned by royalty. And I really, yeah. I don't know if it's true, and I really hope that it is. That's that's what I want to be the history of this Tudor worn or the pearl worn by Mary Tudor for sure. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, incredible that either way, there are two pearls still out there somewhere that are connected with her. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that have an, such an incredible history. It's just, yeah. No, it's amazing, amazing that they still exist even, that you could potentially see both, even though they're privately owned, you know, that they could crop up again yeah. and still exist. Yeah. It's amazing. Exactly. When you, particularly when you think that so many of these jewels were broken down and refashioned and that we don't know where they are and what happened to them now. And I'm guessing, presumably, maybe the stones are out there somewhere, but yeah, we just don't know. So that's so interesting. Um, so finally, Valerie, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment at all. Um, I'm actually working on a few things. So I am currently co-editing three volumes on Mary. So I, have oh, wow. a love, I feel like this is my personal mission. So I have a two volume set that I'll be turning into the press. Um, my co-editor and I will be turning into the press this summer. And it's um, on the first volume is Mary in writing. And the second volume is writing Mary the first. And it's taking um, things or concepts or methodologies that have previously been applied to Elizabeth and now applying them to Mary. So we talk about empire and precedent and queenship. And I mean, we're focusing primarily on textual sources. Um, the focus is writing and literature. So my own essay is on popular literature about Mary at her accession. We have um, essays on uh, the ambassadors and we have lots of essays on Mary from a Spanish perspective, which I think is something that doesn't necessarily get published in English a lot. So we have things from how Mary is currently perceived in Spanish media which is not how you would necessarily think of her, um, to how she was portrayed in Spanish chronicles and things that were printed in Spain that never even saw English soil. So I'm really, really excited about that collection. Um, I have another one that will be turned in in a year or two that I'm co-editing and it's on Mary and Jane Grey, actually. Ah. Um, I know. So we, <laughs> we have uh, 11 essays on... Um, essentially the accession or the making and remaking of Mary and Jane as queens, because we have learned um, that really you can't separate Jane out from Mary's accession. I mean, the stories are just so, the histories are so intertwined that you cannot talk about Mary's accession without talking about Jane. Yeah. And not just the device, but the ways in which the women tried to legitimate their queenship, um, the major players who were involved in the accession, in the coup, in you know who was later executed, who later supported Mary, all of those things are so intertwined. So it's um, a collection of essays on that. And that is even broken into contemporary sources and now modern sources and how even in, you know, now and um, modern understandings or conceptions or mythologies, those two queens are still linked, but now they are diametrically opposed. So you have, you know, martyred Jane and bloody Mary and how those myths have kind of still come to be and just won't go away. That's super, super interesting. And when can we expect to see that? Um, I'm hoping 2023. We're, we're working on first drafts now. So and then on top of that, I am writing uh, another monograph. So I'm doing um, a cultural biography of Anne of Cleves, who's my other favorite queen. So oh, I am I am uh, eyeball deep in Cleves at the moment. So 
you are very busy (laughs) (laughs) oh perhaps you could perhaps you could come back and and talk to us about Anne of Cleves sometime I would love to I think she's a very misunderstood woman as well so I, I would love to talk about Anne of Cleves with you Fantastic. Um, So very, very finally then, Valerie, for those of our listeners who are interested in finding out more about you and your work, where can they find you? Um, I have a website, so tudorqueenship.com. I'm also on Instagram at that same handle, tudorqueenship. Uh, You can reach out to me any of those ways. And I'd, I'd love to hear from people and chat all things Mary. So, yeah amazing thank you so much thank you for having me this has been fantastic thanks so much for listening to today's episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did we will be posting images of mary the first wearing one of her pearls on our social media platforms at history gems on both twitter and instagram if you enjoyed this episode please press subscribe and don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Join us soon for the next episode of History Gems.